Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody. This is our Recommend or Refute episode where we are going to each talk about some things that we watched separately this week and pitch them to the group as to whether we would recommend that everyone watch those or or maybe to, to stay away from them. I am your host, Michael Dixon. With me, as always, John Garcia. Hey, I'm happy to be here. And Brian, I'm so glad you're back. I'm glad that you could join us for this recording. He's not there. No, Ryan is still not here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Ryan King is uh, did not show up to work today, so uh, now I'll open my eyes. And, oh, <laughs> hey, he's not here. <laughs> okay. He, uh, frankly, we're we're concerned. We have uh, put out an all points bulletin. Um, uh, Santa, please bring him back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wherever he is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Ryan, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Anyway, John, what did you watch this week that you want to bring to the group? Yeah, uh, so um, I watched, uh, it's it's the holiday season, right? You got jingle bells in the air, you got snowfall, not in Texas. Um, you got, what, carolers, if you're not in Texas. I've never seen any of those things that I've seen in, in Christmas movies. And uh, I, I just, think I did caroling as a kid once or twice with like family members. It was yeah. weird. It was wow. weird. It's yeah. very strange. It feels cultish almost at this point. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. So, you know, me, I love, I'm a sentimental guy. Love holidays. We did it like, you know, in The Simpsons where they carol so that they can like steal shit out of people's houses. Oh, yeah. yeah. That there kind you of go. Thing. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh-huh. <laughs> sing really loud while Homer is knocking over shit in the back and trying to steal <laughs> toys and shit. Makes perfect sense yeah. to me. I mean, that's the only reason you would go caroling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're not fucking weird. Come on. Um, so I, I just had to, to watch myself, one of them, their holiday movies. So I watched a, a fucking scary movie for Halloween. Uh, it's, we've been like two months past and I was like, all right, Sasha, we can watch whatever you want to watch. We just got all of the lights put up. We got the ornaments put up in the tree. And I was like, why don't we watch the boogeyman? Katie, there's something in my room. You believe me? Don't you? There's no such thing as monsters. You need to grow up. I'm serious, Sawyer. I need to be alone. You're both having these manifestations. What is this supposed to be? It's the thing that comes for your kids when you're not paying attention. to me okay i'm listening <laughs> sweetheart let me handle it. well i mean you didn't watch any scary movies during october except for just scarily bad movies yeah so i had to catch up mm-hmm. um and the boogeyman i knew i knew it came out i remembered seeing the trailer there's like a little girl and she, she pushes like a a light orb under her bed and there's something there i just remember the camera work looking kind of cool like mm-hmm flips underneath the bed immediately. There's not like a hard cut under the bed. Um, there's a lot of consistency in, in what's going on. Um, the, the boogeyman is based on a Stephen King novel or not a novel short story about a man who comes to therapy to, I haven't read it, but from what I gather comes to therapy to talk about how like the police think that he's killed all of his children and he's currently like evading, uh, that suspicion because there's some, like fucking entity that lives in his house that's killed his children. 
like in the middle of the night. Like mm-hmm. The first kid died of SIDS. And then after they thought the first kid died of SIDS. And then after that, like every other kid died in like a really gruesome fashion that he's been framed for. Um, uh, my spidey senses are tingling. I don't buy this bullshit. Yeah. And, and it's, it's one of those things where like, uh, in the, the short story, there is like this, if you're really superstitious, it's creepy to think about. And if you're not superstitious, you clearly think the man did it. Um, in the, the boogeyman, the movie, it's an adaptation of that. And they don't add up, they don't adapt that story, um, to the entirety of the runtime. Instead, it serves as the jumping off point. And so they have, mm. um, David dust Malchian, who, um, you've probably seen him. If you look at us, look him up. You're like, he's that, oh, that creepy guy. guy. Yeah. yeah. He was polka dot man in the suicide squad. He's been in dark night and he was in Dune. he's in Dune. He's been in a lot of fucking movies and he just walks into this therapist office and sits down and he's like, I need to talk to you about something. And like, I, I don't know where to go. And I might, you know, I don't know what I'll do. And the therapist is like, okay, I guess I'll talk to you about it. Um, the therapist happens to be, um, the dad of two girls that live in the house that he also therapies out of. And, uh, um, our, our, our boy, David, uh, decides to, um, hang himself. Maybe that's what they think. Like at some point in time, therapist gets up and goes to try to call the police and say, I have a dangerous man in my house. I don't know what he's capable of. Or he what hangs he himself at his therapist's house. Uh-huh. So he, it's like a first time therapy session because he's like, I'm desperate. Nobody else has gone through the grief of losing a family member. The therapist happens to have lost, um, his wife recently. Chris Messina is Chris Messina. Chris Messina. From sharp, sharp objects. Yeah. Chris Messina. He's great. He plays Will Harper, the therapist and the dad to, um, these two, these two little girls. One of them played by Vivian Lyra Blair, who plays a uh, young princess Leia in the Obi-Wan show. And oh. I was not a fan of that show and I was not a fan of her acting, but she's much better in this movie. And I, I want to see what she does next. Because- I, I feel like Star Wars, you know, post 1983 has a strong track record of actors performing much better in other movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Star Wars movies, um, you know, aside from like Adam Driver and daisy ridley mm-hmm. um but pretty much everybody else like remember when we all thought natalie portman sucked at acting and then yeah. it turns out she's great yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so like uh anyways chris messina he um is this therapist and his daughters they're dealing with their mother's death and his wife's death and so um in this moment uh we have lester billings is the name of the character from the short story who comes in to seek therapy for this thing and so like um after this encounter where he tries to go and Chris Messina tries to go and call the cops uh, and Lester hangs himself in a closet, the closet of their mother's art room where she painted all of her paintings. Um, it's like suspected by the girls that something is different, but by the dad, he's rationalizing it. He's like, like, no, he hmm. he's a very disturbed man, obviously in a pinch when he realized that I was going to betray his confidentiality and trust, he hung himself and you know, who knows what he was going to do. He had killed his children. Um, and from there, the rest of the movie is what you would think of like a creature feature and that kind of like scary shit of there is something in this house. It's been transferred from the previous homeowner, uh, of, of like that, that whole kind of transition of now it's going to pick off your family one by one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's by the numbers, Stephen King. There's a lot of stuff that you can definitely predict, but damn, if the atmosphere isn't 
thick in this movie. It's so good at making dark rooms scary and swelling the noise. And I felt like the the actual scares in it, don't get me wrong, it does jump scares and that kind of shit. But mm-hmm. the general unsettling nature of it is all brought by the atmosphere. And the score does not play a huge role in trying to make those moments interesting. Um, the, the, whatever the creature is that has gotten in that they call the boogeyman, it, um, it has like, it has a, a kind of a shape, uh, that's like a skinny man with like multiple arms crawls like a spider. It drags just like, like David dash, dash Malkian. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah, exactly. Just like yeah. That. <laughs> it, it kind of drags like black mold into wherever it goes. And that's how, you know, it's been there before. So they try to use that to like track it really becomes, um, Sophie Thatcher, who who plays Sadie Harper, the, the main character. Sophie Thatcher tries to carry this entire movie on her shoulders, and I think she does a really good job. She her Does dad, she play the little girl? She's the older girl. Okay. Um, she's like the old sister, the older sister in the the family. And a lot of the movie focuses on her because if it focused on a young girl trying to thwart a demon, maybe not as logical or reasonable in some ways. Uh, maybe it, just a little too exorcist. Yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. of that. And and if it focused too much on the dad, he doesn't believe it. He's a therapist who tries to say, like, it's projection. It's some other thing that's happening. Yeah. Um. And so within that, you just get to follow Sadie, the main character, played by Sophie, Um, as she, she tries to kind of uncover this. And there's a lot of the movies spent with her not believing it's real, being in denial, um, and, but seeing it in certain circumstances, probably the most shallow aspect of it is they don't really show outside of the family's lives. Like Sophie goes to school and she's kind of bullied by like four girls, but there are only four girls in that school. Like that's, it's one of those problems where like, they just don't have extras. Yeah. They have like one scene dedicated to showing you that there are more kids in the school and that all of them know that Sophie's mom died recently and they all kind of say sorry. But after that, it's only five girls in the school and that's all that it is. Um, but, uh, it's the movie is saved by the atmosphere and it's saved by the creature. Um, because the creature has that fucking annihilation shit. Oh, it assimilates people's voices. Oh, love and it that. tries to use that to lure people into different circumstances. And does it, it shape itself that. into a terrifying skull bear thing? It can't do that, but, and this is, you know, if you're out there and you sound, you think that this is interesting and you'd want to see it, um, this is just a visual spoiler, but it's fucking cool to see no matter what. Uh, when the creature finally gets a hold of somebody and is about to eat them, it doesn't eat, like, doesn't bite into their flesh or eat their body. It sucks their soul up. Oh. And it does it because its mouth has, um, you know, the Bane mask from Dark Knight Rises. I, it, how can I forget? It, it kind of looks like that, but it's actually two hands from inside of its mouth that are clasped together and it rips the jaw of the outer skin open and reveals another mouth inside and like a face with disturbing fucking eyes. It's some like just weird shit that I don't know whose nightmares they dreamed it up from, but it looks so cool (laughs) and it comes out and eats like a kid. Soul is your (laughs) ally. Um, yeah, what a coincidence. This creature thrives in the darkness. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, they have a lot of those telltale moments where you're like, oh, the lights go out. Shit's about to get creepy, but it's so well done. And I really liked it. Um, I I watched the behind the scenes for it too. Um, with the director who looks like suspiciously like Alex Wolf or like a relative of Alex Wolf. 
Um, and I, I thought that that was really funny. His, his name is Rob Savage and a lot of his movies, that, don't, not his real name. they don't have like really good, his movies don't have really good ratings, but it seems like he's trying to do interesting things. Hmm. I'm kind of curious to go check out more of, more of his movies, um, and see what his filmography is like. But, uh, I think at one point even they, and I really wish I could compare it for you because, um, the only problem, and I may cut this, but the only problem in the behind the scenes was they compared Sophie Thatcher's performance to, oh God, it's not, I don't think they compared her to Shelley Duvall, but I think that they did something where they were like, she's like this actor where she carried the whole movie. And I was like, I don't know about that. That's a, it was a a strong comparison to me. Very strong comparison. So they did something like that where they were like, she just did this. And it was like this one established actor who was with Kubrick or some shit. And I was like, I don't know about that. I, I, sorry about that. I, I draw the line there. Um, but yeah, uh, the boogeyman was fun. Uh, in, in contrast to it, just a real quick shout out and a big fuck you to this movie. I watched uh, wish upon, which is a 2017 horror film. Uh, it's basically the monkey's paw, uh, but with like a Chinese murder box that you make wishes to, and it kills people. No. Oh. Um, any wish that you make, it takes a life for, and it has to be somebody that you know. Uh, and this movie is... Um, John, Ryan Philippe is the star in this movie. You know it's going to suck. Come on. I mean, well, he's not the star star, but he is... Yeah, he's in there. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Ryan Philippe plays a, uh, uh, a dad who dumpster dives, and his daughter's embarrassed of him, and his daughter is bullied in school, and she finds a wish box and wishes... For all of the shitty things, she's the shittiest person ever. And um, it was such a stark contrast because I watched this and I watched The Boogeyman in the same weekend. And if you really want your valleys and your peaks or you want to really appreciate The Boogeyman, watch Wish Upon first and you hate it all the way through. And then watch The Boogeyman and you'll come out on top and you'll feel all the better for it. But um, yeah, like five wishes in, the, the main character has killed like five of her friends. And people that she knows and the woman from twin peaks who plays Audrey's in it. Oh, um, she plays like a friendly neighbor and she gets murdered by the wishing box. (laughs) Um, but like by the end of it, uh, the main character turns into like fucking Gollum from Lord of the Rings. She's like, it's mine. It's my precious, like about the wishing box and some shit. Um, and all of it's like thrills and the suspense are completely just undercut by it. And it really provided a, a great technical contrast for me. So like if you out there have, feel like you have no film literacy and you really don't know what makes a movie good or bad, you just know you don't like a movie, watching Wish Upon and watching The Boogeyman will give you a great sense of what a good film can be given similar characters who perform similar kind of roles in a story like the main character of The Boogeyman. Um, she could have been unlikable. She does a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense to her friends and it doesn't make sense to even like her, her family, but uh, it makes sense to the audience and following her on this journey is trippy. Whereas uh, wish upon the main character, she makes a lot of decisions that don't make sense to her friends <laughs> or the audience or her family and Ryan Philippi is in it. <laughs> and it's just like, all right, <laughs> this is fucking weird. It's also got high school dialogue. that's written by like somebody who's clearly in their older age and doesn't hang out at high schools, thankfully, um, and doesn't know what high schoolers talk like. And so there's just a lot of lines that are like, wow, K 
can't believe you dig on the multiverse and two fucking people insulting each other. One of them calls the other smegma. And it's just like, that's never been an insult. She's like your ultimate smegma. And I was like, that's definitely not an insult. High schoolers would say, uh, it's also gross. Why the fuck did you write that in there? (laughs) So yeah. Anyways, uh, well, Dixon, um, I I ended that on a low note, but I would recommend the boogeyman. Okay. Wish upon just sneaking that in there. Good to know. What, uh, what do you got? Yeah. So I, uh, every year I, with the exception of last year, I write a blog post list ranking all of Nicholas Cage's filmography from that year. And, uh, you know, it's early December as we're recording this and I have started to dive into the movies that he's made this year that I haven't had a chance to get to yet. Uh, very excited for dream scenario. I haven't seen that yet. So excited to see that. But I watched uh, the first movie that Nicolas Cage came out with this year. It is a Western called The Old Way. I want you to understand how good a woman your mama was. She took Colton Briggs, the coldest killer that I've ever met, and she turned him into a family man. My mama's dead now. Coming in one way or another. Tell me the names of the men who did this. As long as that little girl is alive, there's no room for vengeance. You're protecting a killer from another killer. Can you teach me how to shoot? Nicholas Cage has never done a Western before, and I was interested to see, you know, okay, what is, what is it about this movie that drew him into the genre, and why has he avoided doing a Western for his entire career? Um, it might have something to do with his terrible Southern accent. Um, <laughs> what are you talking about? Just awful. Re- really bad. He's great at accents. <laughs> <laughs> There's like that joke in Unbearable Way to Massive Talent about how he's like, you know, doing a Boston accent for the um, the audition that he's doing. And David Gordon Green's like, yeah, okay, Nick, we'll call you back. And, the, you know, they don't call him back. Yeah. And uh, But like, dear Lord, really, really bad Southern accents. Um, he just sounds like Nicolas Cage with like a weird, like, he is just he like doesn't really know. Ghost Rider Cage or is it worse than Ghost Rider? It's, it's and like, he's done, he's actually done a Southern accent before. Not, not well in Con Air. He does like an Alabama kind of thing. Raising Arizona as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he does one in Raising Arizona. So he's done it before. I don't know why he seemed incapable of doing it in this movie. It is, I mean, it's different. Like it's set in Montana. So it's a different kind of, you know, it's. It's like, it's still what you would call a Southern accent, even though it's Montana is not the South, but you yeah. know, a rural cowboy kind of thing. You're going to have a similar drawl to it. And there's just, it was weird. It just didn't work. Um, the movie opens on a small uh, Western town square where uh, the town boss is uh, about to hang someone publicly in the middle of the town square. And is giving a very self-righteous speech to the entire town about how he didn't choose to lead this town. God bestowed this burden upon him. Okay. And he is just, you know, he's just trying to be righteous and to, you know, stop the the evil sinners in this town. And, you know, they're just going to go to hell and he's going to send them there. And uh, just like one of the most absurd monologues that you will hear in quite a while. This movie is full of absurd monologues. Um. But he's about to hang this guy, and then you see 
a mustachioed Nicolas Cage standing in the background of this scene. Uh, obviously fake mustache flapping in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> like one of those mustaches that like curls down over the mouth that's like not really connected to the face. And this, it's just... this is like the fucking uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mustache. The big <laughs> Zabata-like mustache. Not as, not as, as big as that one not and good. much less convincing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, there is a, a group of citizens that try to save the man who is being hanged. Um, and his, his like 12 year old son is sitting there like begging the town boss, like, Hey, please don't hang my dad. And he's like, he stole from me. He's evil. He has to hang kid. And, uh, then this group of people all of a sudden bust out of the shadows and start attacking and trying to, to free him. Nicholas Cage just starts shooting indiscriminately, killing like everyone involved on both sides of this thing. He kills the people trying to free the hanged guy. He kills the town boss. He steals money off the town boss and some other people. Apparently, he feels like he's owed a debt in this town and is taking money out of people's wallets. Meanwhile, the hanged man is uh, is freed now and he is like struggling on the ground. And Nicolas Cage is looking very menacing, stealing people's money around him. And the hanged man, who has now survived, picks up the gun, points it at Nick Cage and Cage just shoots him in between the eyes with his 12 year old son just sitting there right next to him. Hard cut to. 20 years later. Okay. <laughs> and we go to this beautiful Montana landscape, like in this valley with these beautiful mountains around and this grassy field. And Nicolas Cage, now sans mustache to show the passage of time, of course. Of course. Is, you always lose your mustache. Uh, passive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's now married to a very young woman uh, and they have a daughter who's probably about 12 years old. And Cage is talking about how much he loves his wife and, and uh, you know, how great life is. And he goes to walk his daughter to school and wouldn't you know it, but a band of outlaws comes through and murders his wife. Uh, the band of outlaws is led by the, the child who oh. witnessed Cage murder his dad in the opening yeah. scene. Uh, John, the, the now adult child leading the band of outlaws is played by none other than Noah LaGrosse. Do you know who that is? Noah LaGrosse, not by name. He plays Cage's fake son in A Score to Settle. Whoa! <laughs> it's a reunion movie! Yeah. Um, I was like, where do I know that fucking guy? And I looked up, I was like, oh my god, he's in Score to Settle. Um, if you haven't seen A Score to Settle, dear god, please go watch that. Uh, terrible movie, but, but hilarious. Um, so, basically then it, he, you know, they the band of outlaws runs off kind of trying to goad cage into going to fight them and, and seeking revenge. And he, you know, comes back from walking his daughter to school, sees his wife has, has died and decides to drag his 12 year old daughter on a revenge spree in order to kill these guys. And he's talking to the marshal who's like, he's like, son, like you don't want to, you don't want to bring your daughter into this thing. You're just going to, going to destroy your relationship with her. As long as that girl's alive. You can't, revenge can't be a part of your life. And Cage is like, fuck you. And he just takes his daughter and goes, like, <laughs> trying to kill these guys. And it basically turns into every action movie from the past 10, 15 years, where it's just a revenge story where Cage yeah. is hell bent on murdering the people that murdered his cost, wife. And yeah, any cost. Doesn't even seem to care about his daughter and her well being and all of this and how this might affect her emotionally. Um, I'm sure that's commentary. I'm putting air quotes on it. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's just at that point it gets pretty stupid. There are a lot of 
long, dumb monologues. One of the like sidekicks in the outlaw group is played by Clint Howard, and he's pretty funny. So Amazing. He pr- provides some nice comic relief, and he's kind of always getting shat on by all the other gang members. So like that was pretty fun. Um, but overall, it's it's very very dumb, and Cage is, is actually pretty bad in it, which was disappointing to me. Like usually, I feel like if he's in a bad movie, he's trying to do something, and he can have some interesting parts, and you can see what he's maybe wanting to do and trying to get something out of the experience. I didn't really feel that about the old way. And so it made me kind of wonder why he was, was drawn to this project and why he decided to do it. But um, I did write down, I did write down a quote from the movie that uh, I, th- I think you will find entertaining, John. Go on. He's, he's talking to his daughter. They're sitting around a campfire yep. and he's talking about how his daughter is like, incapable of feeling emotion like she doesn't know how to cry and apparently cage is also a sociopath and he's telling her about his childhood when he had to learn how to like fake emotions and he never knew what fear was and but he could recognize it in people but he didn't really know what it meant and he he turns to her and he says even though i could recognize fear in men i can honestly say i had no idea what it actually felt like it was as if i'd been born dead inside <laughs> but i didn't care because i was dead inside <laughs> <laughs> that's like that fucking quote from next that you like i don't even remember what it was about just like raining fish or something yeah. <laughs> oh my god that's and cage's delivery is wild like just uh it's it's fucking insane like you kind of have to see it to understand like how wild it it is um but yeah um it's 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 a it's that kind of movie there i wish there were more stupid lines like that but like there are enough of them to where i was kind of entertained while watching it it's it looks gorgeous like it's shot in montana on location and it's just incredible to look at the landscape is is beautiful but that's kind of all it has going for it, unfortunately. Do you feel like the uh, landscape shots of Montana were like stock, or do you think they actually shot that? No, it looked legit. I'm, I'm pretty sure they shot all the stuff there. All, all, they had a very consistent feel to them as if they had, had shot them all. They didn't feel like they were pulling something out of a different shoot or something like okay. that. Cool, cool, cool. Um, was there anything particularly that justified it being a Western? Uh, like, was it, did it feel like they tried to do anything with the genre or not really it it felt like they were trying to do a taken movie but in a western and Mm. i guess like a western is a genre that suits itself to revenge stories you know there have been a lot of those done in the past but um i don't know why uh you know they they felt like they had to do it as, as a western i mean like it made it prettier to look at than if it had not been a western yeah yeah that was helpful to get through it god i could imagine if that wasn't a western it's just cage in the woods with like some people Uh i've seen enough movies like that to know where that goes and it's just yeah or even an urban movie just wouldn't be like yeah it would just be a score to settle again yeah yeah Uh. (laughs) (laughs) you think that i have beef with your dad (laughs) Uh, that is Maybe my favorite Cage line of all time is great. from that great. movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, you know, it's not good. If you like Nicolas Cage and you like bad movies, you will find some things that you will enjoy from it. But overall, I didn't like it. So I, I can't recommend it. But um, 
I did think it like the the opening premise was funny to me. It's like in order to get to the John Wick thing, they do every every stupid trope you've ever seen in a movie. Like I hate I hate the hard cut to twenty years later, like right after the opening scene, and like you know the like very obvious. You're my wife, and I love you so much. I don't know what I would do without you. And yeah. then she gets killed right away. Yeah, it's the the it's fucking. Just, uh, I, you remember when we watched The Punisher? There's that whole scene on the beach where he's like, "God, I love you so much." <laughs> and then the whole family's like, "I'm glad we could be here." And Roy Scheider's just like, "We're all alive." And I was like, "You're all fucking dead." <laughs> you know, immediately, yeah, totally get it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh god, that shit's so comical now. It's amazing to me that they still use it. I know. It never resonates. Anymore. Yeah, it's, it's like it's pretty wild. Oh god. <laughs> uh all right. Uh, but Clint Howard is fun with it. There's a scene where they're trying like when they go go on their the house to try to kill the wife, uh, the wife kicks Clint Howard in the balls and there you go. he goes, "The bitch got me in the balls." <laughs> and Noah LaGrosse goes, "You just got beat up by a woman doing her laundry." You sure you have balls? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, the script. That's oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, did you have any other great quotes that you wrote down? Those were the two that I wrote down. When I do my 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 cage article won't be probably won't be posted once this episode posts, but it'll be uh, you know, more toward the end of the year. But um I always pull quotes from the movies and insert them into the article because that's half nice. the fun of these bad cage movies is there's always going to be some really funny one-liners that yeah. stand out pretty well so absolutely um well shit all right well i guess i'll avoid the old way yeah i mean you might have fun with it john yeah uh, you know the general population it eh, probably not um if you like nicholas cage and you like bad movies then you know maybe give it a shot if you have nothing better to do but, um, you know, we'll see. I haven't gotten through. There's some, I, he actually did two Westerns this year and I haven't Whoa. watched yeah, the other one. He actually shaved his head for, um, I forget oh. what it's called, but, um, you know, I'll get to that one soon. Uh, <laughs> but I probably like, it was worse than Renfield, but I probably had more fun with it than I did with Renfield. Well, yeah. You're also a fan of like Western. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Darker. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm now I'm just curious to know what that other movie that Nick Cage was in is. Butcher's Crossing, I think, is what. Ah, okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, it's the only time he's shaved his head for a role, and you can only watch it by like buying it for twenty dollars digitally right now, which is super annoying. So that is annoying. I may have to do that in order to complete this article, um, but that'll probably be the last one that I watch to see if it becomes available to rent for five bucks instead. But man, um, sidebar real quick before yeah. we go on uh, have, you ever see, have you ever seen Sonny I'm realizing now Nicolas Cage only directed one film and that's it no I didn't know he ever directed 2002 movie oh my god Sonny no. 110 minutes long I will have to seek this out one of my buddies who always reviews uh, leaves a review on Letterboxd watched it and didn't say anything about it James Franco is the star yeah that's extra weird Ooh, isn't it? it has a 31 meta score and a 5.6 on IMDb Woof. Harry Dean Stanton is in it. That doesn't say anything to me, right? Uh, Nicholas Cage is... Oh, he is in it. <laughs> He's credited as Acid Yellow. <laughs> All right. Fair enough, Sonny. All right. Uh, uh, so I'll have, to, I'll have to keep an eye out for that. Anyway, yeah. uh, I would not recommend the old way that's going to be a refute. John, I'm going to kick it back to you. Since Ryan is not here, we're yeah. just going to kind of riff here. What uh, what else uh, you got? The, the spoils of not having a fellow co-host here. Yeah. Uh, so 
in addition to watching the boogeyman and wish upon and getting a fantastic, uh, film contrast, I also closed out a few shows on Netflix cause I paid for a month of Netflix recently. Um, Due to Scott Pilgrim takes off coming out, Ryan recommending it. I watched all of that. And yes, it was as good as Ryan said it was. And yes, he didn't spoil all of it, just like he said he did. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was good. Um, but the, the thing I want to talk about is um, a Mike Flanagan joint, Mike Flanagan's new joint. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. The Fall of the House of Usher. Your Honor, no matter how much evidence stacked against them, the Usher crime family stands stronger and darker than ever before. Anyone comes after us, we will exhaust our arsenal until the threat's neutralized. By neutralized, do you mean sued into oblivion on the streets? Neutralized. Like dead. You guys, we really should get together more often. It's just a balm for the soul. Your brother's dead. This is tragic, but a few My Heart Will Go On tweets will pat it out. This was no accident. You have been targeted. And this woman knows everything. It's time, Roger. What did you do? I'm afraid you're ringside for my reckoning, old friend. And this show, it's a limited series. Um, Mike Flanagan is, in my opinion, one of the like poster children for Netflix, who uh, he's just been given several projects. And each one of them, it's not that he's like knocked it out of the park. He's just done a really fucking good job mm -hmm. with what's given to him. He clearly has passion. And uh, Dixon, I've, I've shared my love of Midnight Mass with you. I thought it was you a have. fantastic um, kind of analysis of like religion and how fanaticism can spread as an infection in a small community, which is like, I would, it was just cool using that with like vampirism as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when the fall of the house of Usher came out, I did not give a shit about any of it. Even as much as I love Mike Flanagan, I saw posters, I saw ads and I was just like, I don't know if I need another Flanagan midnight mass is like top tier for me. I've heard that's his best one from like some critics that I have seen. I know he did like haunting of Hill house and some other things and the haunting of Bly Manor and some yeah. hit Oculus and all these other, he did Dr. Sleep, which I know you have opinions of. Mm. Uh, did not enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, but like, uh, actually didn't enjoy it so much that I forgot that I had seen it and you were like, and I reminded Dr. Sleep and I was like, no, I never saw that. <laughs> and then I looked back at, at like my movie rankings from that year. It's like, oh shit, I did see that. It was just the most forgettable thing. It's about those time. hipster vampires going up against Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the fall of the house of Usher, the only reason I watched it is because we got my Netflix subscription and I was watching Scott Pilgrim. And we ran out of it. And Sasha was like, what else is here? And I was like, Hey, this. And she said, I don't know who Mike Flanagan is. I was like, you've seen every one yeah. of Mike Flanagan's limited series up until now. And she said, we'll put one episode on and we'll see how it goes. And this is the most monologuist fucking Mike Flanagan joint I've ever seen. Mm. And that's from like midnight mass had a lot of monologues. Yeah, it did. And they were all very, heavy and some of them very heavy handed, but I loved them. I love the writing. And I think at this point, Mike Flanagan is just resigned to being a good writer of these monologues and mm. he doesn't care as much about some of the other aspects of the writing. So like the fall of the house of Usher, the basic premise is that, um, there's this family, the Usher family, they are basically, uh, all Martin Shkreli's, uh, the, <laughs> and they, they all want to hike up prices and they swear that they're doing good for the, the economy and good for the medical industry. And 
They're uh, some of them are running human trials when they shouldn't be and doing all this other fucked up shit that you would just assume big pharma does now. Um, and it's like, okay, uh, I have all of this cast is just all villains. It, it starts, the first episode starts off with, I think like all of the family besides the like dad, um, who is played by, hold on, I have it here. No, I don't. Bruce Greenwood. He's played by Bruce Greenwood. Yeah, I recognize him. I, I feel like I usually like him and things. I don't can't remember anything off the top of my head that he's been in, but, but yeah, and, and oh, Bruce he was Greenwood. like old Captain Kirk in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those like, things where I'm like, I remember your face, and I I know exactly maybe where you were were in this, but like he's so fucking he's got a memorable voice, and it just kind of like is mesmerizing. Yeah, and the entire thing starts off with a split in the timeline of narrative. It jumps back and forth between past present and like somewhere in between how far back in the past it goes. Um, it's like from the seventies to like 2021 or 2020 to like modern day. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. So Bruce Greenwood, he plays Roderick Usher. Um, the name of this, fucking titan of industry everybody says is like the greatest man ever and his medical industry his his fucking pharmaceutical company is changing the world and it's helping humanity evolve and um the first episode like many mike flanagan shows kind of starts off with what could possibly be wrong in this community or this family and everything's positive roger gusher is like i love my family i would do anything for them um, I love this company Including poison the world. Yeah. I want to change the world and all this shit. And you're like, okay, how are you going to fucking fuck it up? But it also starts at the funeral of like three of his children. And he's looking in the aisles and he sees like a woman in a mask. And he's like, this fucking woman is here. I don't know what this is about. Like, but it's, it must be time to confess to like my sins to, to try to cleanse myself of like whatever this miasma is. Um, and so, so three of his kids are dead at this funeral. At the very start of that, they do three at a time because the kids all die in the same week, like day after day. Wow. They, they, it's, it's, um, this entire show is based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And so it's a very morbid and there's a very Gothic vibe to it. Hmm. Um, but it combines this kind of political structure of using uh, a big pharma family who says they're doing all the right things. And then it peels back every layer of that to show you how fucking awful and rotten each one of them is. To the point where you're like cheering when they fucking die nice and you just want them to to hit that moment of like they're they've been spoiled and they literally have become rotten because of that spoiling um and it all takes place uh in its framing device is this interrogation basically where roger gusher not interrogation it's a confession roger gusher he's lost so many kids decides to make good who knows why or what the thing is that's killing these his family um, but he calls the attorney general in because the attorney general has been trying to, uh, prosecute him. I don't remember which title this, this like, he's just going to like bribe him a little bit. He's, he's basically said like, I give up, like you can have my confession and I'll just tell you everything that I did. Oh, and okay. the AG is like, I've been trying to get you, uh, I've been trying to fucking prosecute you and you've slipped through my fingers all the time. And I just never knew what it was about. And that's how they frame the eight episodes of this is him getting to his confession. So on one hand, nice it's framing. Like, it's device. like the Irishman. Yeah. It's like the Irishman. It's like, I paint houses. He's, he's mm. basically does that kind of thing. And so it's got that vibe to it. 
On the other hand, at a certain point, you're like, he's there's points where you're like, oh, fuck off. Like uh, he'll be like, I committed murder, figuratively speaking. And you're like, oh, fucking God damn it. Um, But so much of the drama and like the supernatural elements are really compelling and just as a really good job of establishing certain characters and really peeling back. It starts with everybody in a state where you're like, I know exactly who that is. And then when they peel it back, you're like, Oh, they're even worse than I thought they were as a person. Mm -hmm. And, um, it has a lot of references to contemporary politics. Uh, there is a character in it that is kind of like the, in a way, the devil, um, that's like negotiating for souls and stuff Mm. in the middle of this. Um, again, Edgar Allan Poe-ish, it's got these weird spiritual vibes to it. But that person is like, oh, I made a deal with this person. And uh, one of the one of my clients said he could I said they could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they fucking wouldn't be able to get it. Like, <laughs> they wouldn't be prosecuted. And it's just like they have these little illusions where you're like, OK, I get it. Yeah. Mike Flanagan fucking hates that part of the politics. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of there for it. Um, it feels a little on the nose. It's very they're very much like yeah. on the nose moments where you're like, OK, but the mm-hmm. rest of it I liked and it integrates a lot of. Edgar Allan Poe's poems into it in a way that's just delightful. Um, and so it becomes this like really nice, it's, it's nice prestige TV. Um, basically like it's not midnight mass for me. I'm not as enamored with it as I was that. Um, but I really liked the journey watching it with Sasha was really fun. We were, we both had like a lot of thoughts after, and it made me want to go read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe's works, which is like just rad to have that infusion. Um, but even not knowing Poe, you would have a good time and you would not register that that was a thing. So, uh, yeah, atmospherically it's cool. Um, Mike Flanagan, he's really addicted to monologues now, which is fine. If you're like looking for monologues, he's got your hookup. Um, and, uh, everything else about it, just like top tier Netflix production, um, a little on the nose with its political speech here and there. It's about a big pharma family. How's it not going to have some ham fist? Oh, shit? sure. Yeah. But, uh, I still liked it and it was a cool, it was a cool descent into madness for the characters and the cast at the core of it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, is it, I assume it's kind of a Sackler analogy and, and talking about how like, you know, these families try to, you know, put their names on museums and act like they're doing good things and shit, but they're actually like destroying the world. Um, it's like you mentioned the anti-Trump politics, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I, I have no problem with that. But I, I think like big pharma is like such a pervasive problem in our society that is just actively being propped up by both parties. You know? yeah, and, yeah. Like, I feel like trying to tie it to criticizing one side or the other kind of takes away from maybe the power that the message could have. Do you feel like that was the case in the, the film or or the show? Or um, am I kind of just putting my own politics too much into this? Well, I think on like the surface level, yeah, you could absolutely read that. But the this this character I was talking about that makes these deals, a supernatural character, um, like their guarantee for characters who are like the fam, like the Trump family or mm-hmm. this fictional pharmaceutical uh, family, it's like basically like you can do anything and you'll get out of prosecution. I think that's the main stipulation is like, you can just get out of prosecution and they show at one point they have a montage of like photos that are clearly Photoshopped to include that character, but it's like all of the fucking oil barons and like anybody who's been rich ever. And Mm. it's less so like a party affiliate and more so like a eat the rich kind of message of like, 
all these people who had great success, nice. they fucking made a deal with some kind of devil and they eventually paid the price for it. And if they fucking didn't, then like there's some other shit at play here that fucks that up. And it was just like fascinating to watch that. But like there are moments where they'll, they, they call out like in every aspect, how like the, the world can be bought and bought off. And like, there are, um, episodes that focus around like, oh, well, if we're rich people, we could make like a rich people party where everybody with eyes wide shut, like show up. And it's like, that person's a congressman and that person's this person and that yeah. person's doing that. And there are others where they're like, well, we're running medical studies on chimps. And do you know how fucking expensive these chimps are? We have to like buy out a whole <laughs> land that reserves for other animals so we can operate on these conscious beings and like that kind of shit where to them it's like absolutely nothing and they write it off and the entire show. Yeah. Gets to be a point where it's like very on the nose. Um, but I still enjoyed it. And the writing is just so mesmerizing that I had a good time. Like it, it's one of those where if you're a real fan of just wordplay and like what mm. can be exchanged between characters and like metaphors that can be applied, it's beautifully written. I loved it. Nice. So yeah. Um, yeah. All cool. the House of Usher. One of the other actors that I recognize on the IMDb page is Carla Gugino. Yes. Um, how is she in the show? I, I typically tend to like her when I, when I see her and stuff. I feel like she hasn't done a lot of work recently she's great and she gets to so she plays that satan ish character okay the deals and she She would be very good at that she gets to do a shit ton of different roles because she shapeshifts to show up and like okay she tries to do in one scene she has to be really fucking sexy and do this kind of thing and then in another scene she's literally playing the doppelganger for like one of the chimps in the lab and like has to act like a chimp and there's kind of this weird you can tell the posture she's doing isn't a human posture. And it, it's just like really cool to watch her inhabit these different. She's doing some Andy circus shit. Yeah. Yeah. She's doing some Andy circus shit, but without like any CG, she's just doing it straight up and it fucking works. I was like, this is, she's terrifying and can be really intimidating. Interesting. At, uh, like, but ultimately she almost feels like this force of good, even though she's completely evil, just like the main characters. Yeah. So it's like, oh, it's fucking wild to watch like evil thwart evil or make deals with it and fuck it over. That's cool. Uh, but yeah, so we would recommend had a tight cast. Um, everybody in it just gave a fantastic performance and they're all so rotten that you just love watching them get killed. <laughs> and at the same time, get to hear some poetry and some classy shit from Edgar Allan Poe. So fuck it. It's That's good. cool. I'm only with Poe. I'm really only familiar with the Telso heart and the Raven, but I really like both of those. Are those incorporated in the show yep. in an interesting way? Yep. Um, yeah. Like the Raven is a constant image that haunts the family. Um, the telltale heart is part of one episode. There's even a character who's working on an invention that's supposed to make the heart beat after it's dead oh uh, long life oh that's and that ties in but they don't use that nearly as a like a, so it ties into like the vampirism idea of midnight mass yeah kind of that yeah. thing um yeah and they do some other stuff I, I recommend the pit and pendulum is cool like there's they do like uh uh they yeah they have quotes from the raven one of the characters is named lenore and oh, okay they have like those references that can be really fucking on the nose but it's all theater it feels like a really good stage production it feels the camera work is so dynamic in it too and uh a lot of the scenes are set up in just this 
great way where they let people do what they want to do. Like the actors really get to just feast on the material and the dialogue's written so well. Nice. So, yeah. One final question for you as a Flanagan head, where do you rank this in his, his stuff? I know that you've said midnight fat mass is your favorite. Where does this fall on, on the list? Um, and, and like, is there that line where maybe he's done some stuff that you would not recommend people watch? I mean, we've talked about Dr. Sleep and uh, sure thing, um, but I'm just going to talk about like the Netflix Flanagan ranking. Yeah. Um, so this probably sits in my like, it's at the third rank. So my top is Midnight Mass. My second is The Haunting of Hill House because um, Mike Flanagan, beyond pushing monologues, he really likes to try technical feats with his filmmaking. And there's an episode of Haunting of Hill House, in addition to the rest of the story, that is done in like the Birdman-esque kind of, they just try to do continuous shots. And it's really fucking cool to see. And if you're not looking for it, you don't pick up on it for the first half of the episode. And then you're like, holy fuck, this has been like one take the entire time. Um, and it's just cool. Uh, and then like below that is, yeah, the, the fall of the house of Usher. And at the very bottom is the haunting of Bly Manor, um, which is still solid, but not nearly as good as the other Flanagan stuff I've seen. So gotcha. yeah, that's my ranking. Cool. Okay. Awesome. So we got to recommend for the fall of the house of Usher, which I thought was some sort of Game of Thrones thing. It very well could now. have been until uh, <laughs> I press play. <laughs> uh, what do you got now, Dixon? What's your other? Yeah. So I am going to talk about a new movie that I watched yesterday at Austin Film Society. Uh, was able to drag my lady friend to the theater and uh, watched a documentary called Lakota Nation versus United States. I want to tell you about the Sioux Uprising, but I don't know where to begin. At the center of all the treaties the Lakota have signed with the United States government is the Black Hills. X marks an agreement. Most tribes have treaties with the federal government, and they're all under the War Department. And another X marks this land as ours. This is our Mecca, the most sacred place in the world. That's why the Black Hills are not for sale, because we're not for sale. When they illegally took the land from our people, it wasn't just the land itself that was taken. It was part of a process to colonize us. If you can make the people suffer by destroying their economic system and their languages and their culture, then you can try to conquer a people. We're not going anywhere. We are fighting for the integrity of our people. We are building the world that we want to live in. This is a documentary about the Lakota Nation Indian tribe that it's, it's kind of like a group of tribes that inhabited this large area of the north central U.S., uh, much of North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska. And, um, you know, uh, as the U.S. is wont to do, they engaged in many treaties with them and continued to fuck them over and steal their land. And there is still a group of modern Lakota people who are fighting to get their land back. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's just a really fascinating story that... Um, you know, it's it's cool to see people still pushing back, like, no, like we're an actual sovereign nation. 
this is our land. We have these treaties. You have to give us our fucking land back. And they have this movement called Land Back. And they're like pushing and fighting and, and trying to have all this activism to raise awareness around this and, and to push to, to regain their, their tribal lands, um, much of which is used for mining at this point. Mm. Um, you know, they basically discovered gold there. And, of course they did. you know... Uh, this movie goes very well with Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, and Kanasatake, uh, 270 Years of Resistance. That right. I was talking about. Which yeah. you mentioned a week or two ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as far as like, it's, I think it's interesting because like as far as 2023 releases, like movies that are new this year, um, I'm going to spoil my recommended refute here. This would like this and Killers of the Flower Moon are my two favorite movies of the year so far. Um really dug this it, it's a really cool story it is directed by jesse shortbull and laura tomaselli um and they are essentially following this group of modern lakota people as well as telling you the the history of what has happened to those people over time it's split into three acts the acts are extermination assimilation and reparation and it's it's really fascinating how they tell this story um it is absolutely gorgeous to look at, and it is a fucking devastating movie. But there are all of these beautiful shots of this land that has been taken away from the Lakota people, and just all of this area in North South Dakota and and Northern Nebraska, just these beautiful areas of these hillsides and these you know sacred land that um, these people were you know living at for for centuries until the U.S. government came and and stole it all away from them. But they. They talk about the systematic process in which the government uh, went about to do this. And, you know, extermination, obviously, that's kind of self-explanatory with colonialism and people coming in and just murdering the, the native population and, and taking their, their land. Also, like, you know, we, we talk about, you know, oh, yeah, the buffalo are extinct. Oh, that fucking happened. Like, that was done, like, purposely by yes. the U.S. Yeah. government yeah. Uh, to basically, bring, like, just to destroy the economy of these these tribes and you know they talk about how yeah. basically post civil war you know you had the US army staying in the south for a bit and, and then they kind of after that they just went west and they were just slaughtering local tribes and and making way for colonists to come through and to take that land and it's just a it's a devastating story they they talk about Custer and and mm -hmm. you know his terrible history of of genocide and custer had a you know the tactic that he pioneered was in killing the women and children of local tribes in order to uh you know kind of destroy the morale of the local people and to be able to pick off their their fighting men more easily Damn. um just such a fucked up mentality. They they showed a clip from a movie that I did not know existed where Robert Shaw plays General Custer. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. I was so so taken aback by that. Um you know, talking about how he wants to go go kill everyone. Custer's got lifeless eyes. <laughs> Doll's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh yeah, just just very upsetting to see. Um it, it so you know, it kind of gets into to a lot of details about how this all happened. Then assimilation is the second act, and they talk about how, you know, okay, we can only kill so many of them, but now we have to kind of ingratiate them in the culture. And one of the ways we do that is we have to get them to, a, like, 
adopt capitalism. They have to, yeah, be Christians and they have to wear these clothes and they have to fucking use our dollars. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, these tribes are, you know, they are very communal and and kind of socialist in in nature. And like, you know, the land is a living thing. It's everyone's. We live here as a community. We we work together for everybody. And, you know, the U.S. government is like, what if uh, what if you all tried to make your own money and, and try to get become greedy sons of bitches? Yep. And um, there, you know, this is discussed a little bit in Killers of the Flower Room, but there's a, a process where the government say, okay, yeah, here's your land. It's your land, but we're going to tell you who owns it and how it's, it's cut up. And we're going to say, okay, every native person gets X amount of acres and they would dole out the land like this to split it up into private property. Yeah. And they wouldn't do that with all of the land. And of they course. would just have parts it- that weren't given out to the natives that were then open to colonization for white people to come in and it's like you take the deck of cards out of somebody's hands and you're like, here's one card for you, one card for you, one card for you, two cards for me, one card for you, one card for Uh you. (laughs) If I can just go. Yeah. Like, all right. Um, and it's just like, it's, it's, it's just crazy to see all of these things put together in a single two hour movie to show how the U S government has systematically tried to commit genocide over the course of the past you know, 300 years to just rid the nation of uh, the native group of people. Um, they talk about Mount Rushmore. This is oh, carved yeah. into like sacred land yep. of the Lakota people, like done purposely as an act of white supremacy to yep. say like, hey, this is our land now. Like, fuck you guys. We're carving our presidents into this this rock face. Um, there's a lot of hatred for Abraham Lincoln, um, which I thought was really interesting. The same week that he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he uh, decreed that 38 Lakota Indians should be publicly hanged. Um, wow. And just like very, very upsetting shit where just the, the mentality of, of the U.S. toward Native people has always been so upsetting, even among people who we think back on as progressive for their era. They were always treating the natives as subhuman yeah. pieces of shit. And it's just very... I will say, uh, as as mythic as Lincoln is supposed to be, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation not because of the slaves. He didn't give a shit about anybody. Oh, yeah. He signed uh-huh. that shit as an opportunist politician, and it's fucking well-documented. Just like uh, fucking LBJ making any kind of peace with MLK and doing any of that shit. Uh-huh. Like, LBJ didn't give a he shit. He signed the Civil Rights Act yeah. because of public pressure. Yeah, exactly. Because, not because yeah. he thought it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, fuck that. You've you decided just because the public thinks it's good, you should do the right thing. It's like, all right, man, fuck off. Yeah. So I totally get it. Totally understand. Um, uh, people can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. People can do the wrong thing because they're still fucked up. <laughs> just like we can. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, the third act of the film is reparation. And that is essentially about the modern movement to repair the wrongs that have been done. And they talk about some legal cases that have been brought before the Supreme Court. There's a case where the Sioux tribe, uh, you know, sued the government saying, hey, this is our land. You stole it. We had legal treaties. You stole it from us. We want it back. And Supreme Court found in favor of the Sioux tribe and gave them like, don't don't sell, don't fist bump there, John. They gave them like 10 cents on the dollar for the land and said, hey, here's like $100 million. And like, it was worth so much more than that at the time. And the Sioux tribe said, fuck you, we don't want it. We want our land back. This yeah. isn't like this isn't fair. And they sue the Supreme don't. Court. <laughs> How does this work? Unfortunately, no, you can't do anything to a Supreme Court justice. They are they are deities in our society and they can be as corrupt and evil as they want. 
as we all know, as Bahamut masquerading as Clarence Thomas has succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so they still have not accepted that money. And like today with interest, it would be worth like $2 billion. And like they still are fighting to get their land back. And, you know, it, it's like where, you know, the Supreme Court can say, hey, we're rectifying this. And like, yes, the amount of money was not near enough to compensate for the value. But even if it was like, you're trying to solve a problem with capitalism that's not a capitalist problem, right? It's still part of that assimilation process, right? Where you're like, oh, just take some money and, and it'll all be fine. Just go away. And yeah. obviously we saw how that worked out when, with Killers of the Flower Moon, where, yep. you know, if a native population get, gets rich, it does not end well. Yep. Um, but, you know, here in this circumstance, even if you say, oh, hey, just take the fucking money and like make some better lives for yourself, Sure, but like that's not that's not what they want. That's not what was taken from them. They want they want their land and they want yeah. the way of life that they used to have before the U.S. government came in and systemically fucked them over and took all their shit. You know, what's amazing is because I, I like I can immediately see the right thing to do for reparations in that instance mm -hmm. is to give them their fucking land back. <laughs> yeah, that and that equates sense. to the amount of money the land is worth that you would then, as the government, unfortunately, because you fucked up in the past have to pay to relocate whoever the fuck's on that land yeah. some other spot and make good right. and then be like fucking we're done okay mm -hmm. but i know that that would launch some counter fucking lash from some like person that's like i grew up on this land and it's nostalgic to me and then it's just like oh, God damn, yeah now i have to deal with this shit yeah that's ah that fucking mm -hmm. sucks man uh, it was it was very deeply upsetting to watch. There's also like there's some really fucked up stuff about like boarding schools, part of the simulation process, uh -huh. basically kidnapping native children and forcing them into boarding schools where they're like teaching them to only speak English. They punish them for speaking their native language and like really trying to indoctrinate them into the Western way. And it's it's just that just uh, that reminds me of like when uh, segregation was ended. Um, I mean, it still wasn't good that the, the integration was not well handled in any way, shape, right. or form. Yeah. It's just like, let's send like any and all black kids to this like fucking upper crust white school where the entire curriculum is geared towards white kids and like everything will not favor you mm -hmm. in any socioeconomic standing that you currently have, like all this other shit. And it'll just make you feel dumb and it'll eventually lead to a systemic teaching of like people having teachers having stereotypes ingrained in their brain still and being like well that's just because these kids are lazy and they don't fucking do this yeah this reminds me of that it's just like setting them up for that kind of failure oh god that fucking that pisses me off i the the most educational texas history class i ever took was in college because going through public schools in texas taught me nothing that i should really know oh, about no. state. Yeah. Um, other than that, we're speaking great. of stolen land. Yeah. <laughs> remember the Alamo, everybody. And remember how it was like similar to the Boston tea party in a way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just a bunch of like dick waving between Americans and another country where they were like, you can fucking, this is our land. We may have agreed to your terms, but we're going back on the deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. Um, and another thing we talked about that, that, really reminded me of israel palestine and how we just keep keep doing this shit over and over they, they talk about how like red the reservation uh concept is essentially like um creating 
Bantustans, which is like, um, you know, the word, the word for like a apartheid states where they take the native population and segregate them into smaller groups that aren't connected. Yeah. So like South Africa was doing this and, and like, you know, Israel's doing this in Palestine. We're like in the West Bank. There are like little cities of very packed in Palestinians and they're separated by Israeli settlements. So they can't actually like work together and communicate with each other. And, you know, in, in the U.S., you have this reservation system where you're taking these people who used to have these, you know, thousands of square miles of, of land and forcing them into separate small groups that are not connected and they have to travel through non-reservation areas in order to communicate with each other and, and to do business with each other. And it's just such a it's like a divide and conquer, like really fucked up method of of taking out the people group and reducing the influence they can have. Um, and yeah, it's just the the whole movie is is very um it's it's very dark and it's very upsetting, but it's also it's really beautiful because one the, the cinematography is is great and they have a lot of interviews with modern people who are fighting this fight, but they don't sit on them for too long. It's like you get some scenes where you're just kind of sitting listening to somebody talk, but a lot of times they will introduce you to the person, show them start to talk and then they will cut to like what they're talking about they'll show you a historical scene or they'll show you like the beautiful area of land that they're talking about and it, it's it's so well edited it it works really well together where i was in, really engrossed for the entire film and, and really enjoyed it and then at, at the end of the movie i was kind of taken aback by the optimism that these modern lakota people have about getting their land back like they're they're still fighting that fight and they are They've been emboldened by things like the George Floyd protests and things like mm -hmm. that. And they are like inspired to, to continue fighting. And like, it feels like they're just, you know, pushing that boulder up the hill and watching it fall down again and doing that Sisyphean thing over and over. But like, they're so optimistic. They're like, you know, one of the guys is like, my people's best times are ahead of us, not behind us. And I'm confident in that. And like, we are going to get our, our land back and have our own people group in our own country again and we're going to be able to do this and like i was watching i was like oh dude like i don't think that's going to happen but like i i was so inspired by their their optimism and their willingness to continue to to fight that fight against a, a seemingly undefeatable opponent and um i yeah. was very uh very moved by, by by seeing them them really push for for what is rightfully theirs yeah i mean that's <laughs> That's always uh, absolutely fascinating to me and it's inspiring because like, yeah, like the forces against you when they're overwhelming or when they're all encompassing, it's the fucking government, like any of these things, history's like rife with revolution led by the people who fervently believe what they're doing mm -hmm. is the right thing. And in some cases it is, and in some cases it isn't. And it's like, in some cases it's taken advantage of. But like in all of the struggles that I've seen by um, like any indigenous people in like North America, the struggles are all fucking justified and history yeah. lays clear on the record that it's needed and watching. Yeah. Like from Kanasatake to like, this is just, it's going to be all like hard evidence of how fucked up and on the wrong side of history, a lot of government organizations are. And government people have been not to say that some people within the government 
uphold beliefs and support for that, but like the machinations and the people that actually make the decisions at the end of the day, just, and I'm not even talking about the U S it's just like, you can get whole systems where it's like the moment that you get into a situation and you find yourself on legal grounds. If you're like a law enforcement office, the police union ties together really hard and they're pushing back against this or that. Um, or there's a narrative spin that's trying to occur on whatever it is. Whereas I'm just like in awe that we can never just throw our hands up and go, you know what? We were fucking shitty people back then. Like instead we'd rather push back and be like, I'm not a shitty person now. Like right. my grandfather was a fuck but I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, and so you can't take my shit away from, from me. Yeah. Don't, and, don't do that. Yeah. I, that's my shit though. <laughs> Even though I got it because my grandfather stole your shit and it, it you know, doubled in the cost or whatever. A million dollars. Fuck man. Like a hundred million was the, the, the Supreme court ruling. But again, that was like still not, not even close to the value of like, it was such a huge piece of territory. Like dude, most dude. of North and South Dakota and parts of Nebraska, like just a massive area of land, like did not come close to compensating them for it. But again, that's not, they, that's not what they wanted. They wanted the fucking land. Like they that's what was taken for them. Yeah. That is what just reparation is. Right. That's, that's one of those things where it's like, if somebody was like, all right, uh, back then you would have made, uh, as a slave, like $72 in three months, um, maybe. So here's yeah. $72 in now money. Here's 40 acres and a mule. Oh wait, we're not going to give it to you. Yes. Yeah. We'll give you $72 instead. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's fucking infuriating, but I, I do want to see that. Um, now that, that looks, I added it to my watch list while you were talking about it. So yeah, I, I think you and Ryan would both like it a lot. I'm disappointed Ryan isn't here because I would like to hear his his thoughts on it. But um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was just incredibly moving. Um, you know, it is it is heavy, but I, I think it is is really worth your time. And it is, like I said, it is such a well done movie. Like I feel like sometimes message focused documentaries can get so caught up in just trying to deliver the point that they're trying to make that they sacrifice or don't think about some of the filmmaking qualities. And that is not the case here. This is incredibly directed, really beautifully shot. So well edited. I think, um, you know, a lot of times people don't really talk about documentaries when you talk about editing, but like a documentary is basically just editing, right? Yeah. Like you're trying to take historical footage and new footage that you're shooting and find a narrative from it and, and stitch it together in a way it tells a compelling story and that's really hard to do when you don't have a script right like you're you're trying to to find the story as you go in a lot of ways and i i thought that it was just really really well done just one of the best documentaries that i've seen in in quite some time so yeah. um would, would highly recommend that people check it out hell praise that's a lot of praise for it um yeah i gotta see this i just gotta go is it can i stream it or do i have to go to theaters that's a good question. I, I believe the only theater in town that was showing it was yeah, Boston uh, Film Society, and that was the last damn. screen they had currently scheduled. As possibly they could schedule more. There was a decent crowd there on a Sunday afternoon, um, but it's. I imagine it will be streaming fairly soon if it's not already. It looks like it is available to rent online through Amazon, Apple, Vudu, YouTube. Nice. Uh, you know, kind of wherever wherever you rent things for four dollars. So you know. Not uh, not not that bad for, in my opinion, one of the best movies of the year. You can watch it at home for a pretty reasonable price. Very nice. Yeah, so that's going to wrap us up today. Uh, this was fun, John. Even though Ryan wasn't here, we had had a, a good time. I got to get to do a little bit more 
individually than we usually get to do on a recommend or refute episodes. That was, that was fun bringing a, bring a double feature to this. Yeah. I had a good time. Um, and I, now I have a new documentary I got to go see and it's going to destroy me, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but also uplift me and make me motivated to fucking be a better person and do better things for other people. Yeah. And if you saw killers of the flower moon and you dug it, you should check this out because kills the flower moon is really great. Um, and it is, is very much a true story and pulling from real things, but seeing seeing real people talk about this and the effect that it's actually had on them is is just different Different story yeah yeah um it's not better or worse it's just it's just different and i I think they they do it really well so uh well that does it for us here at afterthoughts thank you guys for for joining us this week we have a recommend for the boogeyman that's right and a refute for wish upon but they make a great peanut butter and chocolate Peanut butter and shits combination. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. A uh, classic combination that everyone has grown to. America's love favorite. Slash hate. <laughs> butter and shit. Yeah. Um, uh, I am refuting the old way, but if you are a, a, a Cage fan and like bad movies, it's kind of fun, but I wouldn't recommend it to most people. Uh, John, you are also recommending the fall of the house of Usher, um, which if you're, if you're not into monologues and, you know, wordplay, then you might not have as good of a time with it. If you're into Edgar Allan Poe and you want to hear some fancy flowing words in the middle of a horror story. Pretty good. Pretty fucking good. And I feel like Flanagan has gotten a decent following. Like there are people out there who know who he is and want to watch his stuff. So I imagine if you're, if you're that type of person, you should probably seek it out. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, and I am giving a wholehearted recommend for Lakota Nation versus United States. Uh, Cool, all right. Uh, Well, I have been your host, Michael Dixon. Joining me, as always. John Garcia. I don't miss Ryan at all. Not better. No, no, no. Fuck him. (laughs) Every time I'm surprised when you say fuck him. Hey there, movie buffs, TV toughs, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.